This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. First of all, thank you all for coming. I know this is a voluntary thing, so the fact that you even come is a, it's a, it's very positive, you know, to see that uh, there are people interested in science and, and the kinds of science that we're doing at Scripps. And so what, what I'm going to talk about today is I'm going to introduce some different concepts and some different ideas, different types of biological systems that we're studying, and then the ways we're doing it, and the ways we're trying to do the studies using new methodologies that incorporate both chemistry and, chemistry and biology approaches. And so uh, the things we're going to be talking about, you're, you'll never have seen in a textbook. Um, it's because the research that's being done at Scripps, which is all primarily based on human well-being and trying to help cure diseases and establish better health. Uh, it's, it's really at the cutting edge of research. So it's things that you're never going to find in a textbook because textbooks can't keep up. So that's what we're really going to be talking about today, and it's great that you came to sort of hear about these kinds of things. So the first thing that we're going to be introducing, you know, when you, when you do research, is you, you have to pick your biological system that you want to study. And then you have to talk about the different methods that you want to use to employ uh, to begin to interrogate the different types of you know, systems that you want to study. And, and really what we're trying to do is, is perturb our biological systems to really gain a better understanding of health and how we can improve disease. And so first what I'll talk about is the, uh, the biological system. And... It all begins with this guy, uh, Anthony Leeuwenhoek, Van Leeuwenhoek. And so he is considered the father of microbiology, but oddly enough, he wasn't even a scientist. This guy was a textile merchant uh, back in the you know, mid to late 1600s. And, and Leeuwenhoek, like other fabric merchants of the time, had to use magnifying glasses to sort of do thread counts of their fabrics and, and, and figure out how well the fabric was made. And so he, he started this hobby of, of grinding glasses and, and making lenses out of them. And he made really what is considered the first microscope. And so the lenses that he made is shown here. And he would put a variety of specimens onto this microscope on this pin here, like in oil and on water. And then he could go through the various droplets and look through the microscope into a light source and start to figure out what's in a sample. And the different microscopes he made, you could look at red blood cells, you could look at different types of bacteria. He didn't even, we didn't even know what bacteria was at this stage. He just found these little things swimming around in these different types of solutions. And then, you know, he found things like this, which is a, 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 a pathogen. And so he started to uh, make illustrations of all these different things that he was identifying in his, in his observations, like, for instance, the anatomy of a, of a flea. Uh, and then he started to call these things animalcules. For instance, this is a bunch of different organisms that he saw in pond water and in rainwater. And so what he started to do was to write his observations in letter format, and he'd send them off to the Royal Society of London, which was really the preeminent group of scientists at the time. And they thought that, well, he was pretty much uh, 
crazy. Uh, because he was finding all these different things. So they sent a whole consortium of people down to Holland, which is where he was from, and to verify his findings. And so the Royal Society at the time, uh, then once the consortium came back, they said, yeah, this guy's for real. He, he's finding these little tiny small molecules or small animals running around in these little solutions. And so you can imagine in the 17th century that uh, oral hygiene wasn't at its, at its best. And um, so one of the things he did, I'll save you from the, from the images of what periodontal disease looks like, but, uh, but what he did was he took tartar that was built up on the side of, of, of teeth of people that have periodontal disease. And just like the pond water that he saw, he saw all these organisms floating around and swimming around in the bacteria that we have in our teeth. And the observation that he made was that there's an unbelievably great company of living animalcules, these are the bacteria that he's talking about, a swimming more nimbly than any sort I'd ever seen up to this time. That's pretty scary, actually, considering how much we have in pond water. The biggest sort, and these animalcules were in such enormous numbers that all the water seemed to be alive. So he observes the fact that we have on us all of these living, or living organisms. He's the first one to identify that. So we now have to skip forward 300 years of research that have been done in bacteria and also DNA sequencing and things like that. So, for instance, we'll, we'll start with bacillus. This is the first identification of a particular type of bacteria. And Robert Koch did a bunch of studies using anthrax to figure out how germs can infect people and how you can take those infecting germs and put them into another system to create a disease. Louis Pasteur sort of figured out how to prevent the disease. Uh, Paul Ehrlich is another scientist that made these huge discoveries, one of them being a small molecule that he called salvarsin that actually prevented a bacteria from working. And uh, that was in particular syphilis. Twort figured out that not only do we have viruses that infect us, but bacteria have viruses that infect them. And so this is the discovery of bacteriophage, which is a virus. Now, probably one of, I think, one of the biggest findings in the, in the 20th century was that of Alexander Fleming, which he showed that a particular form of bacteria can make a natural product that fends off other types of bacteria. So he used that to, to his advantage, which he called penicillin, to make the first antibiotic. And then there's other types of antibiotics that came about in 1944, right around the World War II, called streptomycin, because we get a lot of res uh, resistant strains of bacteria towards penicillin. And then probably another really big finding, I guess this is sort of on the same edge of the identification of penicillin, is the structure of DNA by uh, Watson and Crick in the 1950s. So just think that your grandparents were born in an era where we didn't even know what DNA looked like. So with this finding, the structure of the helix of DNA Wally Gilbert and Fred Sanger came up with this way in which we can sequence the DNA that, are, that we're made of and what the information holds uh, in this particular DNA. And then Kerry Mollis in 1986 showed that we could uh, polymerize this, we can, we can, we can uh, exponentially make this DNA in a test tube. So that then got to this situation where we can now sequence whole genomes of bacteria and us and everything on the planet, really. And we can do it in a very high-throughput way. So all of these findings 
have now brought us to this idea that we're covered from head to toe in bacteria. Whether you like it or not, you are a walking Petri dish. Um, and you have it in you and on you, everywhere. And the different types of bacteria that you have on us uh, are <clears throat> all different throughout the different types of, uh, all the different areas of your body. So for instance, the palm of your hand, the bacteria that are there, are going to be very different than the bacteria that are on, the, on, your, on your foot, for instance. And so there's a composition of bacteria, there's an ecology that's formed, and a whole ecosystem of bacteria that you have on us. And you can see that there's different ecosystems all throughout your body. And we call these little systems microbiomes. So all of these bacteria that are, are together in one little area is called a microbiome. And as I mentioned, you don't need to know what kinds of bacteria are there, but what this slide is really trying to show you is that all the different <clears throat> regions of your body have different compositions of bacteria, okay? So those that are on your hair are going to be different than those that are in your nose, than those that are in your, uh, in your mouth, in your lung capacity. And we're now able to actually figure out what the individual microbiomes are in all of these areas, and we'll talk about how we know that. So you can actually think of your body as an atlas, like a, an, an entire map where you have all these different little ecosystems all over your body. And what's surprising is that the different types of bacteria that you have on you are more genetically diverse than in ecosystems that are formed on the planet, of the animals and the trees that are on the planet. They're more similar to each other in genetic background than the different bacteria are that are on you. And so not only do you have different types of microbiomes all throughout your body, each one of us has a different composition of bacteria that are on us, and they're like fingerprints. And actually, NCI has actually used, uh, you know, they, they, you know that this is sort of in the, 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 uh, the, the modern world because NCI, that show, actually used this like, technique to show that um, one particular person used a mouse pad uh, compared to somebody else because they sequenced the microbiome. So all the microbiomes that we have on us are, are very different. They're like fingerprints. And so we, how do we get this microbiome? How do we begin to inno get inoculated by these bacteria? It, it, it starts when you're born. And it's different based on whether you're born uh, through natural birthing or through cesarean section. And they found that people that have been born by cesarean section tend to have some systemic issues potentially later in life, like asthma, some forms of allergies. So there's a correlation between whether you're born cesarean or through natural birth. And obviously, you can gather more bacteria as you uh, live, right? <laughs> so you're gathering bacteria and viruses all throughout your life. So how much, how much, of the, how much bacteria is actually there, right? And so you're about two to three pounds of bacteria. Yeah. So you're comprised, like the, the, the adult human is comprised of about 10 to the 13th eukaryotic cells. That, that's a, a tremendous amount of cells. Um, but that's no match for the number of cells that you have on you that you're carrying that is bacteria. So just shown here is that you're about 10% of what you are actually carrying based on number of cell count. Now, if you look at based on genetic content, you're less than 1%. I can't actually 
draw how little red line you actually are based on genetic content. So, here's a question for you. And, and what is the largest microbiome on or in your body? So let me ask you, let me ask you that question. So there's some people coming around with microphones right now. So anybody have an answer? Yeah? She, she's got an answer. Um, your skin, the epidermis. Your skin and what? Your skin, the largest organism on your body, is outside your body. Think of inside your body. Your intestine? Exactly. Your intestines have more bacteria than anywhere else in your body. So you have the small intestine, which is shown here in blue or in red, orange, and then the large intestine, which is a big upside down U, which is about five feet long. And it's really in this large intestine that you have the majority of your bacteria. And so this is what it looks like inside of your large intestine. Yeah. And so the distal gut, which we're going to talk about a little bit more, is the most and well characterized and most populated of bacteria. And there's about 10 to the 9th to 10 to the 12th number of organisms per gram of luminal content. That means you have more bacteria, individual bacteria, in one gram of your luminal content than there are people in the entire world. And your intestine is five feet long. <laughs> so you can see how that is. Uh, Quite disturbing, right? And it's not just bacteria that we're talking about. There's also things like fungi and parasites and viruses and other eukaryotes. There's yeast. There's other things that we have in us that we require for normal health. We've actually evolved with microbial material such that we've actually given up ways that we require in order to live and let them create these uh, different types of biological processes to help us survive. And that includes harvesting inaccessible nutrients that we gain from eating food. There's a lot of things that we can't digest. And we rely on the bacteria to do those digestions. Things also include vitamin synthesis. So there's a lot of essential vitamins that these bacteria will make. And also helping us develop our immune system. And so we can influence our microbiome composition, as I showed a little, a little bit earlier with you know, the pig kissing a kid, was that uh, we can introduce different types of microbes into our body through various hygiene uh, uh, procedures. Our diet is a major example of how we can influence our microbiome. Various medications have effects. Antibiotics are going to have a major effect on the microbial material in our stomach. Us as hosts have a susceptibility towards creating and shaping the microbial material, as well as bad things like smoking, drinking, and things like that, and physical activity all have a role in our microbes. Now, conversely, these microbes have an effect on us. And so just in normal everyday health, they're involved in storing fat, involved in energy metabolism, fat and liver metabolism in the liver, cardiovascular health, cardiovascular diseases, tissue lipid composition, so we get you know, fat deposits on our eye in several diseases, and even into your mouth where there's you know, uh, periodontal diseases and things like that, as well as behavior and motor activity. So it's a, it's a systemic effect that these microbes have on our body. So really, it's a, it's a very, very well-balanced situation between us as the host and them as the microbes. And if either of us, either us as the host, gets sick, or the microbiome gets altered, the homeostasis goes out the window, and this 
all falls apart. So when this happens, we know that altered microbiomes are associated with a disease state, okay? So here's some diseases that are in our distal gut that are resulted from uh, altered microbial material. So as I mentioned, antibiotics. Some antibiotics cause really major issues in our stomach. And we wipe ourselves clean of the microbes that are there. We, it's also been involved in diabetes, gastric ulcers, inflammatory bowel disease that includes ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, malnutrition. So there's um, various communities that are malnourished that have shown that children that are malnourished have really altered microbiomes, as well as obesity and cancer. But not only that, that also has involvement in systemic diseases. Systemic meaning throughout our entire body. Allergies, asthma, autoimmune diseases, dental cavities, and even hardening of the arteries. So how your heart performs over the course of your life uh, has an effect by these microbes. And we've also shown, although a little bit less to an extent that we've shown with these various other different types of, of, of situations, the way in which uh, our microbiomes are comprised also has an effect on autism, depression, anxiety, and even um, uh, chronic migraines. So it's, some groups have shown that if you actually change the diet of autistic children, um, you can actually improve uh, their autistic spectrum. So the question we have, so since the microbiome is associated with disease, can we identify differences in microbiomes between a healthy cohort, a healthy group of people, and some particular disease that we may be interested in? And then can we use this information to develop any particular types of therapeutics? So the first question is, what's in there? Okay, what kinds of bacteria are there? So the next question I have for you is, what kinds of samples are used to study the distal gut microbiome? And this is pretty easy, right? Any answers? Uh, <clears throat> Say it loud and proud. Poop. There you go. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very abundant. We have lots of it. People are full of it sometimes. Uh, yeah, so we actually use that. So you actually take samples, fecal samples, and you can actually use them to start to figure out what types of bacteria are there. Almost the majority of your fecal content is actually bacteria. So previous studies that have been used to study the microbiomes of our distal gut, they all begin with this simple ATG sequence, which is? Exactly. So ATGC DNA. And I mentioned the structure of DNA and sequencing technologies where you can sequence DNA um, through these various uh, pioneering methods that have come out. Paradigm shifting examples. But now we have the capabilities where we can actually sequence DNA of all these different bacteria so rapidly with these various instruments that we can generate, generate terabytes and pentabytes of information within a day. And we can identify the exact specific species because of their unique DNA sequences. And so we can take that information then and create these hierarchical uh, composition maps of the different types of bacteria that are in us. And so this is pretty complicated, right? You don't need to know all these different types of bacteria. I don't know all these different types of bacteria. But this is, for example, some all, all the different types of bacteria that are, in a, in, that are collectively in the human species. And high-throughput sequencing is a culture-free method, meaning we don't need to culture the bacteria, because a lot of the bacteria that we have in us, we can't, we can't grow in a flask. And that was always the very big limitation as far as using and understanding the microbiome. So when this technique came out, it really um, advanced the way in which we can begin to characterize uh, the microbiome. So 
all of those different species, it's really hard to visualize all that information, right? And we're very visual in our ability to um, connect dots and, and unifying theories. So bioinformaticians, people that are, use computation, have been able to come up with this technique where they use statistical analyses where they take all that information and put it into one dot on a graph. And so this is a three-dimensional graph that can move around and it shows through a variety of different people, each one of these different spots is a one microbiome with hundreds, if not thousands of species of bacteria. And you can see that they pretty much group into different orientations. So there's the oral microbiome. Is it comprised of a bunch of different species, sort of similar among people. There's the skin, and there's the vaginal, which are pretty similar. And then there's the gut microbiome. Now, what this line is showing is a baby that was born uh, by natural birth. And it shows how the dis and so they sampled the distal gut of this baby like once every week um, for two years. And, it, and this, this shows where this guy is here now, after two years, but he began up here in the vaginal microbiome because he was delivered naturally. And so you can see how, the different back, how its composition changes throughout the first two years of its life to get down to a gut microbiota. So aside from the human, what other species are studied, do you think? What other kinds of microbiomes have we targeted to understand? Cows, I think. Cows? Yeah. That, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Actually, you, you name it, it's been studied. Um, we have emus, kiwis. My personal preference is the bulldog. I have a bulldog. And so we've actually done studies where we can see how, how correlated is your dog with your microbiome. And believe it or not, it's very easy to associate the microbiome of a dog with their owner because they actually share the different types of bacteria in a home. How similar are we to our most uh, genetically comparable animal? You know, people have done these kinds of studies. Other studies have been done where they've taken the, back, the, the microbiomes of dolphin mouths and to see how different it is from the seawater that is in and out of its mouth. And believe it or not, the microbiomes in a dolphin's mouth are really genetically diverse relative to the seawater that is inches away from um, their actual uh, mouth. Now, the ones that we tend to use in a laboratory tend to be mice because they're easy to work with. And we have a variety of ways in which we can genetically alter a mouse um, to, 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 towards some disease. And for instance, here is an obese mouse, okay? I think that's pretty obvious compared to a normal healthy mouse. So this particular study that was done in 2006, using that bioinformatic approach, was able to show that the microbiome composition of two healthy mice correlates to each other more so than the bacterial composition of the obese mice. So an altered microbiome, in this case, is associated with obesity. Now, associated, that just means it's carried along for the ride, okay? It's just a passenger. What we want to know is, is that bacteria or change in composition of the microbiome actually driving that disease state? So if we take our mice, we have the obese mouse and the skinny mouse. And our question is, does an altered microbiome promote disease, promote obesity? 
instead of just being associated with it. So what these scientists did was they grew mice in a germ-free environment, meaning it's completely devoid of any type of organism except for the mouse. Okay? So it's pretty much like the mouse in a bubble. You've heard about the boy in the bubble? That was back in the 70s, before you were even born. But <clears throat> there is the mice in the bubble, where they have no germs. There's no bacteria. They've never seen a bacteria in their life. So what we can do is take our germ-free mouse, and then we inoculate it with the fecal content of a healthy mouse. Okay? So that bacteria and that microbiome will get rubbed onto the fur of this germ-free mouse, and after a couple weeks, we get a mouse with a normal microbiome. But what do you think happens when we take the fecal content of an obese mouse and turn and rub it onto the germ-free mouse? Get sick, he gets obese. So this is very important, right? Because what happens is an altered microbiome from an obese mouse will drive the disease. It's not associated with it alone. It's driving that disease. So this is showing that an altered microbiome is a target for drug discovery in order to combat a particular disease. So all these previous methods that have come up have shown us what types of bacteria are there, the different types of bacteria that are among individuals, how we're very different, uh, how the microbiomes change over time between us and, and if we take antibiotics or any type of other types of, of drugs, and how those microbiomes are altered in the disease and how they can drive a disease. So the question when I started my laboratory about five years ago was, is that really enough information to begin to understand and develop therapeutics for a particular disease? Because that's what I ultimately want to do in the lab, is to develop therapies in order to uh, combat a particular type of gastrointestinal disease. And the answer to that is, I don't think that's enough information. It's not enough to know what the DNA sequence is of particular bacteria. So we take a look at all the different types of bacteria that are in our distal gut, and if we hone in on one particular bacteria, shown here, and we split it open and look at the insides, what we see is DNA. There's other components that I won't mention. It's not important for this talk. Uh, and then we have the membrane that separates that bacteria from its environment. And, you know, that's the, really one of the major uh, divisions in life that allow organisms to live, and that is the formation of a membrane. So if we zoom in on that membrane even more, what we see is that there's proteins that are embedded in the membrane of those bacteria. Now, what, this is a hard question. I, I want to see if any of you can answer this. What is the central dogma of molecular biology? You, maybe you haven't learned this. I don't know. I don't know what level you're at, so let's see what... I, I wonder if the grad students even know. Anybody? What is it? Exactly. She got it. Very good. DNA. DNA goes to RNA, which makes protein. Okay? So we'll forget about the RNA. That's not important for this talk. But DNA houses all of the information that, that, that makes us. And then the proteins are actually the workhorses. Those are the things that actually are the components that make up our cells, do all of the different functions, uh, sense the environment. These are the things that we want to study. So everything up until now that has been studied has been based on DNA, the information that's there. But what we want to know is the proteins. 
and how these protein functions affect us. Okay, so going back to our picture, we're focusing not on the DNA composition, but actually on the proteins that are made by that DNA. And so if we look at what a bacteria looks like on the inside of our stomach, they nestle themselves into, into our intestinal layer. Okay, so you can see that here, electron micrograph. So this membrane with all of its extrusions are, is this, and that's located in our large intestine. So these proteins that are embedded in the surface of the, of the bacteria, as well as us, have a variety of different functions. For instance, they can be involved in structural stability. They can actually allow the membrane of the bacteria to be structurally stable. They can be sensors for their environment. They can tell the bacteria how to respond to changes in the environment. And that can be chemical cues, biological cues. They, uh, there's, there's forms of functions where these uh, proteins can anchor themselves to us. So they just like literally anchor and attach themselves to us and allow them to stay immobilized in a particular region. And then there's things like food processors, right? I mentioned how uh, bacteria that we have in us are required for uh, digestion of particular food sources that we can't digest our, our, ourselves in our stomach. And so these kinds of proteins and these protein functions are located on the surface of these bacteria. But not only are they located on the surface of the bacteria, these bacteria will actually secrete them totally off into their extracellular region. And so they're secreting them into the space that's between us and them. So it's crosstalk between what the bacteria have and then what we're providing to the bacteria. And so this is a very schematic orientation of our intestinal layer. This is all the intestinal skin that's lining your large intestine. And that's protected by a mucosal layer, a mucus layer. That mucus is, is, the, is the line between us and the bacteria, and it helps protect us from the bacteria. And then these bacteria secrete these different types of proteins. So my question is, and the question that our lab is trying to understand and address is, do certain diseases have altered levels of bacterial proteins? Okay, so are there increases in a particular protein or protein function in a disease? or loss of a function in a particular disease. And so we'll talk about what the things are that we would like to do. So just looking at the differences between what a disease model looks like and a healthy model looks like, we can see that in this particular disease, we think that there's going to be some increase in a particular protein function uh, that is associated with, for instance, a gastrointestinal disease. And so there has been an observation in science that suggests more food is degraded by obese mouse microbiomes, okay? So what they do is they can take the fecal content uh, of obese mice versus normal mice, and what they find is that there's a lot less uh, remaining food, food in the, fe the feces of an obese mouse, meaning that there's some additional food processors in the obese mouse that is taking up more nutrients relative to... Uh, a normal mouse. So in science, what we have to do is make hypotheses. So we feel that this is going to be this way, and we're going to test that hypothesis. So the hypothesis we have and the question we have is, do microbiome bacteria make more food processors in obese mice? It's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. So basically what we can look at in the different function, does, every, does everybody know what Pac-Man is? Okay, all right. Well, I, I don't know. You know I mean, this was, the video, this was the only video game when I was a kid. So 
<laughs> That's good. So uh, basically, the, these food processors, we think there's going to be some uh, increases in these guys in an obese mouse population, okay, relative to the healthy. Now, it's very complicated to study a particular protein function when there's thousands of other protein functions that are also swimming around in these environments, in these samples. And so what my lab does is we design small molecules that will specifically label a particular protein function. So say we want to study the food processors that are being secreted by the bacteria. What we can do is design specific chemicals that will hone in and bind to and not let go of those particular proteins. And we can have a tag on that particular molecule that we've made, such as this nail, meaning metal, and we can actually, this is where the whole markers and magnets comes into play in the title talk, is that we can mark the protein functions that we want to target, and then we can isolate those away from all of the other thousands, if not millions, of different types of proteins that are in us. Okay? And then we could take that out of the system and then study them independently in a laboratory on their own and simplify that incredibly complex system of microbes and the proteins they make. And then we could start to see if there's actually differences in a particular protein in a diseased state versus a healthy state. Now, that's not enough. Because what I showed earlier is that the obese microbiota, even though it's different in an obese mouse versus a healthy mouse, that's just an association. Okay? Same thing. Does this increase in a particular protein function actually drive a particular disease. And that's where things sort of get complicated, because what we need to then do is take our protein function and study it in a test tube and learn about it and figure out what it likes to do and how it functions. And then we can use that information against it to design small molecules and chemicals that will prevent its activity from working. So we can literally make small molecules that will target a particular function. And so the question is, will such chemicals represent new drug leads. And because then we can take these molecules and put them back into our biological system and prevent that particular function that is altered in the disease state. And then we can see, do we in fact then bring about homeostasis? Can we make that microbiome and bring it back to a healthy microbiome and reduce and remove a disease? And so that's what our lab does. So just to summarize, the largest microbiome that you have is in your large intestine. And you also have bacteria in your small intestine as well. Different among individual diseases, and it can cause disease. Okay? Any alteration in that microbiome can cause disease, and they're very unique across different people. DNA sequencing technologies has provided a ton of information as to what kind of bacteria are there, how they're different across people, how they change across time, how older individuals' microbiomes differ from adolescents, how they differ in a particular disease versus normal state. And we can gather that information with these bioinformatics and computational approaches to figure out what they do and how they're different. And then what my laboratory is doing is trying to expand off that information and use chemistry to begin to understand the actual biology of a perturbed microbiome using small molecules that we can then designed to target a particular protein function to figure out how they're different, and then use that against the bacterial proteins to design small molecule drugs.
So, you know, this is as cliche as you get, but we really are not even at the tip of the iceberg as far as the kinds of biological studies that we can do and the, the, the observations and the, um, the discoveries that are being made every day are not even touching all of that information that is out there to be yet discovered. So, you know, I give these talks and I like to do these outreaches and I do this because some of you may be my colleagues at some stage, okay? I'm not that old. Uh, and so, really, I mean, you have to understand that, you know, you should be questioning your predecessors, you should be driving questions. You have more information at your fingertips than anybody in the history of time before you has. So you should be the ones that are coming up with really new and novel hypotheses and connecting dots. And not just in science, but also in the arts and humanities and other types of social sciences and things like that. So you should really be questioning and really driving and really uh, opening your eyes to what's out there. So with that, I just want to send some acknowledgments out there. And Shirley and Art um, are put this together, and so I really want to thank them for doing this. And also the graduate school, because they have a lot of... Uh, responsibilities towards making this happen, bringing you here and organizing all the different grad students and also Anna because she helped me out with this, per, with this talk because I don't know how to relate to students. These aren't the typical types of talks I give. I usually have to talk to my colleagues and it's a lot easier because we talk the same language. So I, uh, if you have any questions that you can't think of here today, if you want to know anything about science, how to get into science, you can email me. Here's my email. Okay, And this is also my lab's website. So um, if you want to learn a little bit about, more about what we do, we don't just do microbiome studies. We do a lot of other human disease studies. But you can find out information there as well. So feel free to email me and contact me if you need to. And uh, with that, I'll take any qu kind of questions that you have. question. Um, when you were talking about the obese um, mice, yes. Okay, you said that when you put it, when you put the obese one with the one that was um, in that stable area? That had no germs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then um, later on, you got obese, but how about if you put it with the normal one? How about if you, oh yeah, so the question is if you take the germ-free mouse and then put it with a normal mouse, what happens? The mouse actually um, is normal. It, it, it's fine. It, doesn't, it gains a little bit of weight, but it gains a, a weight that is similar to what a normal healthy mouse will have. So these germ-free mice, um, even though that they're, they're, they're a really good model system to use, the problem is they have a lot of issues when they're born. Their immune system is totally screwed up because they don't have microbiome material there to help them develop their immune system. They're extremely skinny. They have heart issues. They have a really small heart. Um, and that's because the microbiomes are involved in, in, in developing all of these different types of organisms, so or organs of the, of, the, of the mouse. So the studies themselves are, are very good, but they need a lot of work. And so to answer your question, yes, if you put it with a normal mouse, the germ-free mouse will have a normal healthy microbiome. Um, does this work on humans also? Yeah. So one of the things that people use, doctors, physicians, um, 
is that they use what are called fecal transplants. So what they do is people that suffer from um, Clostridium difficile infections, C. diff is a type of bacteria that is incredibly difficult to get rid of. It, um, it, it colonizes your distal gut, and, and it's very tough to get, remove it. So what they do is that they will actually put these people on antibiotics for a treatment, and that wipes out their system. C. diff will still be there, but then they take poop from somebody, and they put it back into another person. And so, you know, this has been around since the 60s and 70s, but um, people are doing, you know, not only for diseases, but people are doing this to try to lose weight. Uh, try, and it's not, so, you know, <clears throat> you can obviously do this on your own. You don't need the FDA to be. <laughs> but um, there, there are people that do it. You can find YouTube videos of how to make, Yeah. And it's, it's a very powerful way of doing treatment. The, the issue is, is that, you know, we, we talk about all these different bacteria that are in there. We can't, so the FDA, the Federal Drug Administration, they like to have a very concrete information as to how a treatment is going to affect you. And they want to remove all of the variables, all of the bad stuff that can happen when you take a drug. Problem is, when you take an entire bacterial content and all of its molecules and all of its stuff, we have no idea what's in there, and put it into a human, it's just... So we, don't, we can't control it. And so um, the FDA hasn't really approved this process yet because they, they can't figure out how to, how to use it. But some doctors are, are, are doing this. There's, some, there's doctors all over the world that... Um, use these fecal transplant technologies to help cure diseases. And they work very effectively. Um, in the obese mouse, it seemed like the drug that it seeked, that it would block the food processors, or the ones that look like Pac-Man. Yeah. But I was wondering, um, you know how there's a healthy mouse and then the obese mouse, and you said that the way that the, like the lifestyle of the healthy mouse mattered? How effective would it be if the obese mouse imitated the healthy mouse? Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a fantastic question. That's a huge question because, so the question was, um, can you influence, let me make sure I get it right, and if I don't, you, you can um, shake your head yes or no. So the question is, can you take an obese mouse and put it into a healthy lifestyle of the, that the normal mouse has in order to... Um, get it back to a healthy microbiome state and reduce the obesity, right? Okay, absolutely. It's called dieting. <laughs> the, problem is, the problem is, though, um, you know, there's, there's certain types uh, and certain situations where that might not be possible. And For instance, these mice have this exact same diet. They're genetically altered in such a way that they can't, they can't, um, they can't control weight loss and, and, and promote weight loss. So, uh, yeah, absolutely, humans can do diets and things like that. But this is a situation that I talked about in one of the slides where we can affect our microbiome. So, yes, we can actually, and there have been studies that show people that have extreme weight loss will result in their microbiome will go back to what a healthy microbiome looks like in composition. Um, but uh, there's going to be situations where chemical and biological interventions to combat obesity or any other types of disease 
are going to be required. But yes, you can alter it with the diet. Absolutely. What would happen if you put an obese mice into the germ-free? So say that again? Oh, okay, okay. So what happens if you... T ah, that's a really good question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the question is, what happens if you take the obese mouse that's genetically altered to be obese um, and you raise in a germ-free environment? Would it be obese? I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> However, I will tell you this. But, 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 but. There's a situation that I do know of, 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 of a paper where um, they took a mouse that is, is, is genetically altered to, be, um, to have ulcerative colitis. Ulcerative colitis is an inflammatory disease of the large gut, of the distal gut. Okay? So when, the, when this animal is raised in a normal environment, it spontaneously, on its own, will develop a, an inflammation in its gut. But if you raise that mouse in a germ-free environment, it doesn't. Yeah. So that's sort of the same thing. And my, my initial, my, my initial I, I don't want to give you a false answer, but my hypothesis in that situation with the obese mouse in a germ-free environment would be that it would be fairly normal, probably a little bit um, overweight relative to the normal mouse in a germ-free environment, simply because um, there are... The, the issue with this is that they actually, uh, the host is actually having issues with metabolism of fat. So uh, they will get fat in their diet, even though it's germ-free, and they would probably still be slightly obese, but nowhere near to the a level that they are in the normal environment with, with bacteria around. Oh, oh, yeah, wait, she had one down here because she got... Um. So I have two questions. Um, the first one is, did the obese mouse have more microbiomes than the normal mouse, the healthy mouse? Yes, it actually had. So by, by cell number, it has a higher content of bacteria in its microbiome than the normal mouse. And that's why it was fat, I mean, obese? Uh, well, it's one of the contributing factors. So there's all these different factors that go into this study, right? So it's, it's the diet. It's the genetics of the host. It's um, the, 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 uh, the, the number of microbes that are there. So that is a contributing factor, but it's not necessarily the, the ultimate factor that, that, that is making the, the mouse obese. The majority of it is because the, the mouse is genetically made to be obese. Um, my second question is... Um what effect does antibiotics have on microbiomes? Yeah, it, it typically just gets rid of it. So this is why um, the use of antibiotics ha has been studied extensively as far as how it changes the composition of the microbiome. So what happens is you take a two-week treatment, typically of a broad-spectrum antibiotic. And what I mean by broad-spectrum is that it kills all types of bacteria. We have drugs that will kill types of bacteria, but broad-spectrum means all. And so what happens is you wipe yourself clean of microbiome, of microbiome. So if you've taken antibiotics, sometimes you get a stomachache, and the outcome isn't so nice. And that is you flushing yourself of your microbiome. And then what happens is you have to repopulate yourself with the microbes. Now, one of the issues is that uh, your healthy microbiome that is there also protects you from other pathogenic bad forms of bacteria from coming in.
Penicillin is the form of that small molecule that's formed by a particular bacteria. So a lot of bacteria make small molecules and they secrete them out into their environment to prevent other bacteria from coming in on their territory. You know, it's, it's, it's trying to protect their environment. So there's a lot of commensal organisms that do the same thing as the penicillin-secreting bacteria and that they will um, prevent pathogenic forms of bacteria from infiltrating and coming in. But once you get rid of your microbiome by taking an antibiotic, those pathogens can come in free and will. You know, they can just populate. And so this happens where C. difficile, Clostridium difficile, which is, you know, you get a lot in the hospital. Uh, that's because people are on antibiotics. And that will infiltrate and will colonize your distal gut in the absence of a normal, healthy commensal organism because you took an antibiotic. Can the microbiomes become, like, mutated or immune to the antibiotics? Can't, okay, so, yeah. So the question is, can the microbiome become mutated or immune to an antibiotic? And the, the answer to that is probably. So, you know, like I said, there's hundreds, if not thousands, of bacterial species in you. And so all of those are going to be affected differently by the, by the antibiotic that you would take. So, yes, there are definitely cases of antibiotic-resistant bacteria, um, and uh, there probably are healthy commensal organisms that we have in us that um, would be resistant to the antibiotics. Uh, but as a whole, like with all the hundreds of species of bacteria, I don't think so. I, I, I mean, the likelihood of all of it coming resistant to an antibiotic is, is unlikely. But sp particular species, absolutely. Hi. Um, Hi. What other sorts of research, I actually have two questions. What other sorts of research have you done in your laboratory uh, about how microbiomes, how, how have you altered other microbiomes in the body to improve uh, either human health or resistance to diseases or anything like that, other than uh, obesity? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So the question is, what other kinds of diseases are people studying uh, in a laboratory that are related to a microbiome and how we can alter the microbiome to alleviate that disease, right? Is that basically what you're asked? Yeah, it, a lot of diseases. So as I mentioned, um, in, with, with, I mean, they're looking at autism. They're looking at other neurological disorders. That's like in the brain. Uh, they're looking at how particular types of small molecules that are made by the bacteria um, affect us in heart disease. For example, you have a particular type of molecule that we ingest called um, uh, tarring and phosphatidylcholine that come from cheeses and, and, and meats and, uh, and, and seafood, uh, particularly um, shellfish. And so when we ingest that, the microbiome will turn that into a really small molecule, and that gets deposited, and it results in deposition of lipids on the heart. So it's actually a better correlation to heart disease than high versus low cholesterol that we have in the clinic right now. And so we're still trying to figure this out, but um, for example, do, do, have, ever, have any of you ever drank Monster? Okay, well... Monster, for some unknown reason, adds a, a molecule to, taurine it's called, um, to its composition to, to make it taste better, I guess. 
And that molecule, there's so much of it in the, the drink monster that it's equal to eating about 20 steaks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that molecule gets turned into um, and, and causes heart disease. Yeah. Taurine. T-A-U-R-I-N-E. Oh, hi. All right. I'm going to ask the question. All right. Are the mice the obese or um, the mice, the obese one and the healthy one, allowed only to eat the same amount of food? Or does the microbes cause the obese mouse to eat more, and the mice are allowed to eat as much as they can? Right, yeah, so that's a good question. So in that study, they control um, the, the, the amount of food that the mice is allowed to eat, so that you, have, you, do, you do regulate the, uh, the, food, the food intake of the mouse. So they are taking the same amounts, the same, everything's regulated. So... The obese mouse, in that case, yes, it did have the exact same food content. <clears throat> now, with that said, um, the obese mouse's microbiome can, can harvest more nutrients from that food relative to the healthy gut uh, microbiome. So your question about is there more bacteria in the obese mouse, yes, there is, and it's changed as well. And so that change in amount and, and composition results in the ability of those bacteria to, to chew up and, and generate more nutrients that we then absorb relative to the healthy distal gut microbiome, which leaves some nutrients behind uh, in, the, in the fecal content. All right, well, hey, guys, thank you so much. I had a really good time. So. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.